Hey, everybody. We love that you're benefiting from this show. Because we are a do-it-yourself podcast, we would ask that you help spread our message by sharing the podcast with somebody that you think may get value from it. Remember, you are the most important part of the show. Thank you. We at The Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, everybody? I'm Willie. And I'm Cameron. I'm Frank. What's up, Frank? Hey, Frank. How's it going? <laughs> Welcome. Thanks Welcome. for having me on. Welcome yeah. to the show. You're in the third seat. I yeah. like it. I like this seat. We got we got Frank here with us today. Good to have you. He's the executive director for the SOAR program. We'll get into what that is. Glad to have you. Glad to have a guest. You look good. How you feel? New dad. I appreciate it. I am a new dad. It's a big deal. It's probably the biggest thing going on in my life right now, but like yeah, she it. just turned nine weeks old. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, so she's just a baby. She's... Yeah, she was born in October. Wow. Yeah. Did, is her name Corona? <laughs> no, it should have been. Her name's Jersey. Ooh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Your dad looks good on you, man. Thank you. It's an Thank honor. You. It's an honor to have you here. You know, get to talk about some stuff and 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 have you tell your a st- little bit of your story and and we're gonna try to get into the topic of self development because I think sore is such a a major player in that field in our area for you know developing after sobriety getting sober staying sober and then continuing to grow right i think you guys is, are awesome what does SOAR stand for uh school of addiction recovery okay yeah so SOAR is just it's, a it's just a treatment facility or so yeah we don't call ourselves a treatment facility we're um essentially like a non-profit addiction recovery program and we're also a recovery gym um so if you've ever heard of like ftr and salt lake fit to recover it's mm-hmm. Kind of like that. It's a safe place for, you know, recovering addicts and alcoholics to come hang out, work out, connect with each other. And then we also run several 90-day programs, like an adult one, a youth one. And then we just started our Youth Young Bucks uh, program. It's kind of a preventative program. There's kids as young as like 9, 10 in there. Just teaching them how to lift weights, get them sweaty, and pitch a little concept at them. And, you know, Dustin always says, Dustin's the the founder. Um you know, if you can teach a kid how to use a bar, you might keep them out of the bar later on. So, <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, we're kind of going in that direction, helping more youth too. So that's that's been really fun. Cool. I think there's like a direct correlation between like fitness and and staying sober. At Seems least, to be. Yeah. yeah. In in my experience, like I know that it was a huge part of my recovery, especially early on. It's huge, and it's it's all about this balance. So, like at SOAR, we try to get people to live their lives on a foundation of health. But it's not just the physical health. It's, you know, mental health, emotional mm-hmm. health, um, you know, spiritual health. Like, when, what does that all mean and how do you have that in our lives? Because, you know, you might see some people that go to AA meetings that know what they're talking about, know how to be sober. But on the other hand, you know, they're smoking cigarettes, eating McDonald's every day. And then right. on the other hand, you might see someone that goes to, you know, Vasa every day. And, you know, super jack, but as soon as they get in the parking lot, they're flipping people off and just like up here, it's not happy. So it's like, how do we blend these to have this well-rounded idea of, you know, health, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, how do we do that? You know, what are, what are some of the things It takes that we pressure. Do that? It takes personal development, Yeah, right? for sure. <laughs> After sobriety, like, like 
some things have to go, I think, you know, we have to start letting some shit go in order to make room for new stuff, right? Like, oh, I think so. Like, and, and your story isn't, I mean, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. You had a little bit of a rough go, man. You yeah. Know? Like, it's been a lot been, of ups you, and downs. You've been sober now for uh, almost three up years. On three years, yeah. And, um, like, you talked, to, we talked a little bit about before we started shooting about, a little bit about what that looked like but you're not from utah no so i was actually born in los angeles um this is a weird random story lived there for i think like six seven years you know the early part of my life and then um just with my mom i never met my dad um he's never been a part of my life um but anyways uh one night <laughs> my mom and i were home and our neighbor was this big cocaine dealer and he got a grenade thrown through his window like an active grenade holy while we were home, and then my mom's reaction was like, screw this, we're moving to Idaho. <laughs> it's funny, because it's like a pretty nice part of LA. It's like, you know, on the corner of Santa Monica, like getting up into Beverly Hills, but he was just this big time, you know, cocaine distributor and whatever. So I moved to Idaho and then lived there until I graduated high school, till I was 18, um, moved back to LA. During that time, you know, middle school, high school, I was experimenting like a lot of people do. And it seemed like that's what all my friends did, you know, drinking beer on the weekend, smoking weed, and then started, you know, doing whatever I could find, you know, Sun Valley is like pretty isolated, you know, more so than a city. So if like, you know, all of a sudden mushrooms were in town, like, oh yeah, we got to get those. Or all of a sudden there's, oh, there's cocaine here. We got to do that. But it wasn't like problematic per se until uh, moved out to LA. I got a full ride scholarship to uh, to USC, pretty good university out there. And then just that extra freedom, like it just, things started spiraling, you know. Um, after two years, I ended up losing my scholarship there because I failed all my classes one semester um it was just like a week-long blackout and then I remember vividly like my phone was kind of beeping and this alarm was going off so I looked at it kind of gained a sense of my bearings it says I had a anthropology final in 30 minutes and I look around and I'm on a couch on a lawn in the middle of like south central <laughs> and people are running like crack and God knows what out of this house. I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know anyone. They're like, oh, what's up, Frank? <laughs> they called me effed up Frank. And then I just like remember realizing I was on like 80th and Vermont Street, like way, like miles away from, you know, USC. And I was like, I'm, I don't know where my car is. Like, I'm no, I'm not getting to my finals. And I had so much shame and guilt about that. I just oh, sure. continued the blackout and didn't go to any of my finals. So I failed oh. all my classes. But, you know, it was like kind of this transition from, being the student, you know, at USC to kind of going out and, you know, living this party lifestyle. Then I started selling drugs to kind of support that lifestyle and then got wrapped up in, you know, some gangs down there. Like I wasn't involved in the gangs, but I had this genius idea. I was going to be, you know, the next Pablo Escobar. And I was like the middleman between the gangs and USC. So I, you know, kind of moved their product on campus and stuff. And then just this weird lifestyle, you know, this skinny white kid from Idaho. And I felt all powerful like I was you know like selling drugs with gangs and then you know in the daytime I could be a student and then I could you know go and talk to the girl at Starbucks and then I could talk to the dean of the USC law school and then I could freaking you know chop it up with gang members on the street and I was just this like chameleon that could kind of be anyone right mm. and like that was part of the addiction like right. it felt good I got that like sense of acceptance and fulfillment um but yeah so then I lost my scholarship to SC um essentially couldn't go back because you have to pay like 60 grand a year to go there and my family wasn't down and then the next like probably six to eight years was just a series of treatment centers jail 
getting sober, um, relapsing, going to jail, going to treatment, went to six or seven treatment centers. Eventually, um, my insurance stopped paying for my treatment centers in California, but they would still pay for some in out of state. So that's when I came up to Utah. It was in 2017 to go to a treatment center in South Ogden. Um, I stayed sober probably a couple weeks. I met a girl in treatment. We left together, and then the rest is kind of history. Did, I, did you guys leave the treatment center? We graduated. We both you graduated. graduated. Okay. Um, but like throughout the course of the treatment center, we were constantly being put on you know different whatever you call it, like, you know, the, they catch us like hanging out together. You guys can have to be 10 feet apart. And we were like, screw these rules. You guys, won't. we're going to be together the rest of our lives. This is true love. And, you know, we graduated. <laughs> Which it was, I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. That's how it goes. I know that. I know that game. Right. Just that. Exactly. Trying to fill, I'm sober. And so I'm trying to fill that void with something else in this new relationship and feels good. But a couple of weeks after we left, um, we had both relapsed. We were, you know, shooting heroin again and then living in my truck basically in Salt Lake for like a year. Just selling drugs, stealing, robbing, doing whatever I could to support my habit. Um, you know, and it's just always like a series of lines you say you wouldn't cross, you know. Like, oh, yeah. first time I did heroin, like a couple years before that, I'm like, I'm never going to touch heroin, right? And I did, and then it's like, okay, I'll smoke it, but I'll never shoot it, right? And then right. I did that, and then, okay, but I'm never going to do meth. Like, all of a sudden, I'm doing meth, you know? And then it was like that in Salt Lake, too. It's like, you know, when I didn't have any money, I like I actually was negative. I owed Bank of America like nine grand because I kept using this credit card and my debit card, and I had been such a good customer. They let me, like, overdraw, mm. and then until finally they cut it off, and then... It's like, well, I'll steal from like Walmart, right? But never a person. And then a couple months later, I'm like breaking into some lady's house in right. Salt Lake, you know, to just crazy <clears throat> stuff that's like not me, right? Right. But it's part of the addiction, part yeah. of what it what it does to you. Um, I'd say like the the real rock bottom was <clears throat> February of 2000 or January of 2018. I almost lost my foot because of heroin addiction. Um, I had shot up and I had missed the vein in my foot, but I just been trying to find a vein for like two hours and I was so sick I was like I'm just gonna do it anyways over the next couple days it started getting red it started hurting it started getting swollen and then finally I went to the ER and then they like immediately took me back and they're like okay we're gonna need to call an orthopedic it was like two in the morning they had this guy on call woke him up out of bed he came to the hospital he took one look at my foot and he's like I'm gonna do my best to try to save it and I'm like what do you you mean I thought you could just drain it and you know, give me a couple of antibiotics, I'd be on my way. But no, I had to stay in the hospital for like 13 days. Um, five surgeries on it during that span. And I still have like really pretty bad scars, but I have pretty much full mobility and not nerves. Like I can't feel the top of it, but it doesn't affect my everyday life or anything at all now. So it's a big blessing. But it's funny because that was like the rock bottom, but it wasn't even the moment I got sober. Right. Sure. Yeah. Like while I was in the hospital, like, you know, obviously they're giving me morphine and all this stuff, but I was still having my girlfriend go out, get heroin and bring it back to me in the hospital and put the blanket over me and shoot up like in the hospital. Oh, man. When I left, still living in motels in my truck. And then it was probably like two months later, um, a gentleman that I knew, Don Coleman, um, I'd met him a couple months earlier, but like he had worked for a treatment center at the time and he kept trying to get me into treatment. I'm like, eh, not now, not now. I'm not ready yet. Finally, he called me up and was basically like, are you ready to get sober? And I'm like, yes. So he kind of lined it up for me to go to a detox, went to a detox and then, um, was introduced to Dustin Hawkins who started SOAR back then it was called war workout addiction recovery 
came up to Ogden, went through that program, and then been sober ever since. And then now I, I work with them there, and we're basically running it together. It's dope. Yeah. It's that's a, a trip. That's amazing, man. Like, I just love, I love hearing, you know, how, how it was and, and the craziness that, you know, is, is addiction. And it's such a, such a good reminder. Just, you know, all your stories are similar to all the many, many, many stories that we hear on the show, but it never ceases to amaze me just how crazy things can get, you know? Yeah. Um, but then to hear, you know, now, now you're obviously in a position where you're giving back and helping other people. And I would imagine too, that when you, when you, interact with those people that you telling your story to them gives you a certain amount of credibility. Yeah. I think it's also helpful. Like I'm in a unique situation to where pretty much anyone that comes through the program that needs help, I can relate to them on some level. Mm -hmm. Cause I've like kind of experienced like a lot of life, you know, living in LA and, you know, coming from a good family that had money to the college party scene, you know, to, you know, drinking at frats to, you know, the weed smoker. I was like, you know, a stoner for 10 years. And then to the heroin addict, to the meth addict, like I've done like most drugs and I've lived like most kind of lifestyles, I guess. So that like whatever someone's struggling with, I can like relate to them on that level. Oh, I've done that too. Oh, I've been there, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's really helpful too. Yeah. Would you say, like in, in that journey, you know, we, we get to this point where we get sober, we get some decent footing underneath us and, and we decide at that point, like, okay, what now? Now I'm sober. You know, I didn't, I didn't think that I would ever, you know, get to a point in my life where I would be sober because I know in my own experience, like I just, I never thought I was going to get out from under it. Right. I had convinced myself that that was like how I was going to live my life and I was going to die a heroin addict. And I kind of, for a while sold myself this story of it where it was like almost elegant or like it was like this tragic it was story. romantic like right. Icarus like you know ah poor Frank he had so much potential but he flew too close to the sun and then right. crashed and burned and that was like I was okay with it uh-huh. you know and it just seemed like too big of a hill to climb to get sober again because I'd tried it so many times you know mm-hmm. and so many treatment centers and stints in LA County Jail and Orange County Jail San Diego County Jail you know and it's just like finally you know enough was enough and i gave it one more shot and that's you know the time that it's really kind of stuck mm-hmm. but it was interesting because there was a difference that was noticeable this time even just two days into it when i was in detox this last time i had this feeling of you know i went i kind of woke up and i was still going through it and sick and shaking and sweating and bones aching but i went outside and i smoked a cigarette in the sun and i took a deep breath and i got this feeling of like God, I never have to do drugs again if I don't want to. And every other period of time where I tried sobriety, it was always like, God, I don't ever get to do drugs again. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll try sobriety. You know, it might be worth it. And then, but it was always this like kind of, I hadn't closed the door on it yet. It was this feeling of like longing for, and sadness for like, I'm never going to be able to smoke a joint again mm-hmm. or, you know, drink beer again or, um, and then this time it's like, I was glad. I was like, I never have to do any of that again. And like, so that's, was, I think that strong foundation, there was like a willingness that wasn't there before. And I don't really know where it came from, mm-hmm. you know, it was just something was different this last time, which is hard. Cause so many relapses are part of so many people's stories and, you know, obviously my story too. And so you never know when someone's done. And so like, it's kind of, you have to know yourself yeah. and that's like hard to get across to someone. It's like, it's really up to you, you know? And it's like, have you made the decision that you're done? And if you're not done, you might not be done. And, you know, a lot of times you don't know 
if you're there or not until you feel it. So it's it's kind of interesting. But for me, I, I had noticed that from the beginning this time. So so as you went into as you went into treatment and came out of treatment and you got with Don, what did how did how did Don's role work with you in your sobriety as far as like where you're at now, the growth and getting you involved with war and yeah, you know the workout and because because you you got sober right, you went to a detox mm-hmm. right, now you're staying sober and you're in this other in this other program right right so so beyond the actual getting sober right what what did what were some of the things that you started doing right off the rip to to kind of develop more in sobriety and start gaining that that confidence that can add to the feeling of you're done yeah i think the confidence like you said is huge and it's just like that's like a big part of what happens at SOAR is, you know, we take people through the gym. So like when I was going through, you know, Dustin kind of taught me how to work out, not just work out, but how to train, um, right. With like a barbell and a lot of power lifting, Olympic lifts, a lot of like conditioning pieces. And so it's just this like battle of, you know, being put in stressful situations, like, you know, better than anyone, you know, a tough workout is, it's mentally difficult, right? And like, I know you do marathons, you do a lot of crazy workouts where I'm going to do a thousand burpees in a day. And it's like, <laughs> there's times when you're like telling yourself, God, I don't know if I can do it, but you push through anyways. Right. And so we kind of call it orchestrating stress. We're like purposely orchestrating stress. So like in this kind of controlled environment, so you can overcome it and like, okay, you adapt to that. Then you can step into a little more stress and you kind of linearly progress and you can look at it like with weights, you know, say I started my back squat at 95 pounds and then the next time my muscles adapt, I can do 105 pounds and then that's stressful and then my muscles adapt. Well, that translates to like life confidence too, right? Because when I was first getting sober, everything was overwhelming, right? If I had to send an email, like, it was, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And then, like, I had to talk to my mom, and I had to apply for a job, and, like, all this stuff to where, like, the gym kind of helped with that. So where it's like, I can do this, right? And then I can step into a little bit more because at first, like you're saying, the bare minimum is just being sober. It's just not picking up heroin. But after, like, you know, however long it is, like a month, two months, three months, like, okay, like, now... That's not enough. Like, now what are we going to do? Now we're going to get a job. Now we're going to go back to school, whatever right. it might be, right? Now we're going to kind of repair the relationships with family, uh, loved ones, friends. And so it just keeps, like, adding more and more and more until, like, you know, you can kind of adapt to it. And then you can kind of handle a, li- a little bit more of, uh, you know, whatever your path is or whatever life has to throw at you. But that's, like, that personal development and that confidence is, is huge. And it's kind of a never-ending journey. Right. Like, there's never a time when you're done, you know? Right. Even if you look at it, like, with money or something, I don't really think there's a moment where you're like, okay, I'm done, and I can, like, retire at 40 or something. And then it's like, well, what are you going to do with your time? Like, you're right. going to become discontent sooner or later. You need to find a new hobby, passion, you know, something, mountain to climb. Um, like, whatever it is that kind of keeps your engine running, whatever it is that keeps you going. Yeah, I love, I love that self-inflicted adversity, man. Yeah. Because it's so important if... And I I found that if if I don't do it myself, the universe is going to do it for me. And when when I can have a program or a habit or something like that where I'm inflicting it on myself, what did you what did you call it? Orchestrating stress. Orchestrating, orchestrating stress. stress. Yeah. Right. And so when I orchestrate my own stress, then as those things come up, like you were talking about, the email, the job interview the traffic, the, the food decision, 
those things become more under my control because I've already dealt with the hardest thing of my day. Right. You know, like, like the hardest thing I'm going to do today is already done. And mm-hmm. so I have a little bit of control over my emotion when it comes to unexpected shit, right? right. It just helps us be better people in general because the adversity is going to come just like when we were on the streets, you know, we never fucking knew what was going to happen, but we always knew what was going to happen. We always knew some bullshit was going to happen. Right. And we're, and, and there was some conditioning that went in, involved with that, you know, as far as getting used to that street mentality and that drug lifestyle. The first, the first time that I ever saw a gun get pulled, it was stressful. Yeah. But by like the fifth time, it wasn't as stressful. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, it wasn't as bad anymore, but then getting sober the first time i tried to get sober it was tough but by the last time i failed at getting sober i was used to it yeah and so by the last time when i finally was ready to finally get sober like you were talking about like making that decision it was tough again yeah it was it was hard and it by it being hard it constantly puts that reminder in the back of my mind that if I ever make the decision to start over again, it's going to be even fucking harder and I right. may not make it back. Yeah. So what am I willing to do to make sure that that doesn't happen again? Exactly. Right? What am I willing to do on a daily basis? And that's where it comes from. Like it's always daily, right? I don't think you can get complacent, you know, because it's never, I don't know. I always try to tell myself like no matter how much progress I make, like it's one wrong decision away from being back to where I was. Yeah. And it might not happen immediately. It's like, you know, if I fall off on something, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the gym or my nutrition or the program, like, you know, I sponsor people in, in the AA program, like outside of my work at SOAR. Um, and if I stop doing something like that, it's not like the next day I'm going to have a needle in my arm, but it's like I'm going to start getting more irritable yep. and I'm going to start getting pissed and like oh, something's not right and I'm not happy. And then like if I keep making a series of incorrect choices, you know, who knows, a month later, three months later, six months later, I'm going to end up, you know, where I was, you know, shooting heroin again. Yeah, or it doesn't seem like that bad of an idea. Right. Yeah, exactly. Do you feel like in that instance that fear is a motivator? I mean, it, yeah, it could be a motivator. I don't really look at it as like fear. Um, there's this, you know, line that you're probably familiar with in AA. It's like, we don't want to regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. So it's like, I'm not filled with like shame or regret about my past. I've come mm-hmm. to terms with it now. I've cleaned it up, but I'm not going to try to completely forget it at either. You know, right. I want to constantly remind myself just as like, you know, motivation to not go back there. And I don't think it's, it's as much fear anymore. I don't really know, I guess, what it is. I, I guess motivation would be the right word. Mm-hmm. It's like I have a purpose in my life now. You know, I'm working at SOAR. I'm helping other addicts and alcoholics. I have a family now. I have a daughter. So it's like because of all these reasons, like I got to keep pushing forward and, mm-hmm. and putting pressure on this lifestyle. Yeah. Right? I, I have much more to lose now in, at this stage of the game than I did then. Right. And I've, and I've earned that and I've achieved that through one day of sobriety at a time. Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, like what, what I noticed was that the hardest thing I had to do, you guys are talking about, you know, that orchestrated stress. The, the hardest thing that I had to do at first in recovery was get one day of sobriety. Mm-hmm. Maybe the hardest thing I had to do was to make that actual decision, yeah. you know, that, that I was going to do it this time. And, and like you, I had a couple of instances until I was finally like, just humbled enough and had my ass kicked enough that it was like now yeah now is the time right and i think a lot of it for me and my experience even in working with others is this state of humility 
where you're kind of beaten down. You're like, all right, what next, right? Because so many times when I try to get sober in the past, I still wanted to do it my own way. Right. So I'd listen to a sponsor, listen to the therapist or the counselor, and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to do this, but not this because I don't want to do that. This time, like I was so ready, like I said at that time, like I'm like, what, I, like, what am I going to do to yep. get sober? I'm going to listen to people that know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So like I kind of, you know, there's something I like to say where it's like if my sponsor or Dustin had told me like, all right, in order to get sober, you got to do a handstand naked for 10 minutes a day. Like I was going to do it. Right. And like, I think that would have gotten me sober because it's not about like what I'm doing so much as like the mentality of I'm willing to kind of give up and listen. Yep. Right. And Mm -hmm. so it just so happens to help that the things they told me to get, like to do to get sober also help, but it's also the fact that I was in that place and I had enough humility and willingness to like follow direction, which was also, I think the main part of what helped. And I see that when I'm helping other people, if like they have a little bit of like this kind of combative attitude, like mm-hmm. I think sooner or later, unless they change that, they're going to fall off. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. A lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times. And I think, I think I love what you're sharing. Cause as you were sharing, I was thinking about how doing those things really do help develop ourselves, you know, because once, once we do something that works, right. Like, like Dustin, you know, for anybody that's listening or watching, um, uh, he's, he's, he's been a, um, a professional athlete. Right. He's, he's been lifting. Like you can look at Dustin and see that this fucking guy knows the gym and he knows athletics and he knows like he, he lives that lifestyle. And so when you listen to people like him in the gym, when it comes to a lift and you do what he says, eventually you get to a point where you're doing it yourself, right? Right. You're developing yourself through his coaching. And it's the same thing with sobriety. Like you were talking about with my sponsor, when I first got sober, this last go around, I listened to him the same way that you're talking. Yeah. And it put me in a position to where I could win. And eventually it developed into my own style that works for me under those principles that work yeah you know i was no longer trying things that did not work right like i was doing before like like well i'll i'll uh i'll i'll come to i'll come to believe that a power greater than myself will will restore me to sanity but it's only going to look like this one certain power Mm -hmm. Uh, and and i'll do a four-step but I'm I'm only gonna write about the things that make me angry. I'm not gonna do anything on my sex inventory, right? Because it's too painful. And then I'll do I'll do this step eight right now because I feel like apologizing to everybody, even though I've never done a step five. I'll just jump ahead right. and shit, and I'll start apologizing to everybody. But not that motherfucker. I'm not apologizing yeah. to him for shit. Yeah. And then I end up loaded again, you know, because I'm trying to do this stuff on my own. And so that part that you're talking about, humility. And willingness, I think, are a huge part of Mm self-development and developing into a character and to a person that really the world benefits from me being, right? Like, And I think that 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 coaching and that sponsoring and taking direction and applying those things to our lives are just so big for longevity and sobriety. Mm -hmm. For sure. And it shows. I think a lot of it is like, you know, the principles behind all this are like kind of universal principles of truth. Right. And it's not so specific, like, you know, so in SOAR, we teach people how to train in a gym. A lot of it kind of looks like CrossFit style workouts or, um, you know, we involve the barbell a lot, you know, power lifting and Olympic lifting, but it's not like that's the one thing that's going to keep you sober. Like we're not telling the clients that like you need to freaking back squat, you know, three times a week for the rest of your life. You're not going to be sober, but it's the idea behind it of like 
the being willing to to try it and listen and the orchestrating stress and like you know find whatever it is that works for you right and so like a lot of our um, like the co- four main courses we teach um, in SOAR, like the fitness course, we do a nutrition course, a life coaching course, and then like a spiritual course. And so the spiritual course, a lot of it's like 12 step based. And then a lot of it's just like experiences. We take people out and go on hikes together, right? Or we'll take people up to the lake or we'll do, you know, a walk in scenery. And then after the walk, we have everyone send out three healthy text messages to, you know, people they care about. And it's not like those are specific things. Like if that's not your bag, like when you leave the program, we're not saying that you'll go have to hike a mountain twice a week, but like mm-hmm. find whatever it is that like gives you that. And then like keep doing that. You know, for some people it might be like music, you know, like oh, I really love playing guitar and this is like a coping skill for me. And so like they can do that, but like not everyone plays music. So like it could be art or it could be like whatever it is. Right. But the principles behind it, I think are what are important. And, you know, it's kind of this, trial and error thing of finding what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really appreciate that, that you said trial and error, because I feel like that's such a big part of personal development is figuring out what doesn't work for you because, but I think, you know, the other part is just willingness, right? Like I have to be open-minded and willing to try just about anything. And then I'll get to decide, you know, as I move through it, what's going to work and what's not going to work. But if I can be open, um, open-minded enough and willing enough to try these things, right. then I'll likely find something that's going to work for me that I might put in column A or column B of my recovery and refer to it as needed. Yeah. Like I know in, in my own personal journey, like at first, when I first got out of treatment, I was a sponge, man. Like I, I listened to and I absorbed so much information and tried so much, so many things that I never would have thought that I would try as far as things to help me grow in a positive way. Now I'm far enough down the road that like, I look at some of those things and I'm like, man, that wasn't really for me, but like I was willing to try them. Right. And so I think that the important part is being willing to try, try those things and discover for yourself, like what's going to help you continue to grow and what's not. Because for me, if I'm not growing, I'm moving backward. Yeah. And backward means another relapse. And that's just not a place I'm willing to go. No, absolutely. I think it's important to remember, too, that like the world is constantly in a state of flux and it's constantly changing and we ourselves are constantly changing. So like the things I need to do to stay sober today aren't necessarily the same things I needed to do a year Mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. Like when I was first getting sober, it was important that I called my sponsor every day, um, you know, that I did whatever it was, right? That I went to, you know, three meetings a week and did this, this and that. Well, it's like, that's not necessarily what it looks like today. It's like, I can go a month without going to a meeting and I'm not going to be in danger of relapsing per se. Right. It's like, but then I also need to keep helping people. And like, you know, when I was first, you know, a week or a month sober, it's like, I wasn't like, I didn't, wasn't in a position to be able to help anyone. But like now that's a huge part of staying sober. And so it's like, what I do five years from now might be completely different than what I do now. Like I might not even be at SOAR anymore. I might be doing something else. Right. But so it's like, you can't stay too attached to like whatever it is because things are constantly going to change. But it's like, it's like like the, the action doesn't matter nearly as much as the principle, right? Like, like the principle, is the is the driving factor of what continues to help us develop in our sobriety, in our spirituality, in our lives as whoever it is we are and whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish through this one life that we have, which is hopefully fulfillment and helping other people yeah. to do the same thing. So Yeah, so I, I like what you said. Um, cause I think giving back and like being of service and 
helping other people is a huge part of my recovery. And I almost think that's like a universal truth that people in recovery need to do that in some form or another in order to stay sober. And it doesn't have to look like, you know, the 12th step where you're sponsoring people Mm -hmm. and leading them through the program. But, you know, it can look like, you know, freaking helping your neighbor shovel his driveway or take out the trash or just kind of this idea that it's no longer just about me and like my selfish needs and wants and control, ego, pride, right? It's like on this bigger scale and especially now with my daughter it's like you know kind of have to I have to look at it from this perspective it's like you know I'm trying to raise her and give her a good life and it's like not about me and what I want to do anymore mm-hmm. and I carry that into work too it's sore you know and it's like if I'm having a bad day you know it's going to affect the clients there so it's like I got to put on my game face and try to be helpful to other people and that's like a huge thing that I carry with me on a daily basis I'm always like reminding myself of that you know in prayer and meditation it's like you know Help me be less selfish. Help me not, you know, just be afraid of, you know, not getting the things I want or losing the things I have. Like, help me just, like, add to, to life today, you know, mm-hmm. helping someone else. And I think that's kind of indispensable. For sure. Yeah. And what I've noticed is, you know, we, we I feel like we get a lot of different recovery stories that come through here. And not everybody, not everybody's recovery looks the same, right? Like there's no one way to recover from drugs or alcohol. Yeah. And there's no one way just to continue to develop ourselves personally. Um, But what I have found is that one important crucial thing that seems to be consistent is that we're always taking this honest inventory of ourselves. And there's things that we learn in a 12-step program that I think are so crucial to the idea of like maturing in, in a way that, that helps ourselves and helps others. You yeah. Know? So one of the things that I, I've noticed is, um, is like I said, well, like you said, helping others. And so what else, like what about the SOAR program? Because I know it's not a 12-step program, but what are some of those foundations within the SOAR program, helping others and, you know, taking an inventory of your life that are sort of consistent throughout any sort of personal development program. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that we say is that it's really a student to coach model. So we want the clients that are going through it to kind of, you know, get a strong foundation and then become part of the family. And then the next guy that comes in that's, you know, 10 days off of heroin, this client that, you know, has a hundred day sobriety can turn around and help Um, that client and so it really builds this you know camaraderie this community and this connectivity of of peer support and helping out with that right so it's like someone that's been there a couple months and you know maybe graduated is an alumni that comes back to you know a meeting it's like they remember what it was like right and they can even help with some of the lifts and the technique where it's like you know they might just be starting on their progression of a back squat but you know this guy can't even do an air squat so they can kind of help with that Mm -hmm. I think that's cool and like you were saying how everyone is unique and not everyone's recovery looks the same. I mean, it's kind of like that in the SOAR program too. So we have our main courses we teach and obviously the gym and fitness is a huge part of it. But once you get a baseline, not everyone's goals are the same, right? So if someone cares about fitness, like they might be like, well, I'm going to try to have it be a goal or I'm going to get it, do, run a half marathon in six months, right? Another person might be like, dude, I want a 315 pound back squat. Mm-hmm. And it's like those two training styles are going to be different and diverge. So it's like, they're still doing personal development and going along this path, but like, you know, with a different intent or the same might go for nutrition, right? We have a basic nutrition philosophy. We teach people, but some people might, you know, take that once they get the foundation and be like, well, I want to try, you know, the keto diet or I'm going to macro count or I'm going to be a vegan and just do plant-based. And it's like, all those things are okay. 
but it's like you then take that wherever you want it to go and like like i was saying with the spirituality where we take people on experiences you know like hikes and jogs and we do a cool cemetery experience where you walk down through this meadow and this nature park and end up at a cemetery and pray and it's like read a little bit um, but we're not saying everyone has to do that but we're just taking people showing them a new experience and then they take the base of that and it's like well what am i going to do for my spiritual work right mm-hmm. i think that's important yeah i would agree with that i mean i think obviously in any sort of program it seems like first of all like having a sense of community basically knowing that other people have been there and done what you have done before and being able to have a conversation with those people about it and knowing that you know those people identify with what you're going through i think seems to be really really important and then also it seems like there is some sort of spiritual aspect to any sort of personal development like whether that comes from a higher power whether that comes from like an energy that's shared between individuals who have a similar story or whether it's you know just meditation or connecting to you know that divine energy within yourself yeah. like it seems like there's always these consistent themes that, that play a theme in everybody's personal development. And I think that's what's, what's worth, you know, talking about is, again, there's no, like, one pathway to to getting sober or to developing yourself personally. I think the main thing is that there's just these tenets that are important to adhere to in order to continue to, like, mature in that way. Right. I agree. <clears throat> and and uh, I think it goes back to, like, what Frank was calling – universal principles or universal truths, you know, and, and I think that that's a perfect, you know, you mentioning community and, and commonalities, I think is a perfect segue into our war story because, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Mike, you know, I appreciate everything that you brought as far as, uh, the the SOAR program and the conversation that we've had, I've had, I've, I've gotten a ton out of it and and I appreciate it. And, and, uh, you know, there's a lot that can go along with the story that we heard, yeah. you know, here. You know, we got a, we got a story from Mike from New York, and uh, we all got to listen to it. So mm-hmm. what what'd you think? I, I, I really liked it. You know, it's just, it's, it's amazing <clears throat> to me. And I think he was one, too, that I really heard, you know, the way that he told <clears throat> his story, he kind of reflected back on the fact that it wasn't a 12-step program. But then he talked about things that he did in his recovery that sound like things I would have done in a 12-step program. And so it comes back to there's no one pathway to recovery, but it seems like there are very important things that we all have to do in order to get sober. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I heard him, you know, talk about how he really had to take an honest look at himself, right? Mm -hmm. And he talked about, you know, being genuine. And he also said something about, you know, similar to what I said, where there was kind of a moment where he knew he was done, and that, you know, he's like, not everyone is, is there at, you know, the right time or whatever. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just give that to someone, like the willingness to stop using. And it's kind of a decision they have to make on their own, like whether or not, you know, am I, am I finished using drugs and substance abuse? Am I done with this way of life and ready to try something different? Mm-hmm. I like how he tied that in. And and also how, you know, he, he went to the methadone clinic and that program and then, you know, got his like, I forgot what it was called, peer support advocate license. Right. And then you know, continues to, to do that and to give back to other people. And that's, you know, perfect. Exactly like what we were talking about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, nobody can tell Mike's story better than he can. So I think without further ado, we'll share Mike's story with you right now. Uh, hi, my name is Mike. I'm an addict. Uh, I'm 48 years old. 
I was born and raised in New York City. Um, I guess I started using at the age of, I could say about 14. I uh, started smoking marijuana. Uh, eventually, marijuana led to alcohol and alcohol, you know, led to, you know, harder drugs. I first um, experienced like LSD and mescaline, you know, hanging out with my friends in Queens. Um, I guess I started doing heavier drugs later on in life, maybe at about like 22, 23 years old. Um, after marijuana, alcohol, and like my experiences with like LSD, um, it sort of led me to uh, opiates. I tried heroin the first time. Uh, I was 21 years old. I was incarcerated at the time. Um, while incarcerated, I was, I was doing, I was doing a, uh, a five to 10, five to 10 year bid for, uh, for a robbery charge that I guess was, I guess you could say was drug related. I was pretty much, you know, finding ways to get money to be able to, you know, buy drugs, uh, which led to a pretty lengthy, uh, prison sentence. So during the, during the robbery conviction, uh, while on Rikers Island, I did heroin for the first time. And from there, I dibbled and dabbled, you know, during my sentence with heroin, but it never, it never got to the degree of me having a serious, serious addiction to it. I went in at 1995 and I came home in 2008. And from there, you know, my heroin use got pretty serious. Um, I went from doing about four bags, four bags, well, like two, two to four bags a day. And that led to about a bundle a day, uh, which led to pretty much a serious like heroin addiction. Um, I went from sniffing heroin to shooting heroin. And then from there, just you know, things took off to a pretty like frightening, uh, frightening pace and uh, just turned into like a living nightmare as like many heroin addicts experience. So my first time trying to get clean was I went to uh, a, a treatment facility in the Bronx that um, pretty much uh, treated guys on parole men on parole with uh, substance use disorders uh, and mental health, uh, mental health issues. So it was a micro program that at the time I wanted to get clean, but I wasn't hundred percent committed. Um, so like I said, I wanted to, but it really didn't, it didn't really happen until three or four attempts later. So uh, in and out of treatment facilities from the age of like 31 to about 35. Then I decided to go on methadone. Uh, methadone was a pathway for me that at the time I thought that me being on methadone, it was sort of like, I'd see how I like, functioned on it 
And at first it wasn't, it wasn't too, uh, it wasn't too helpful for me because at the end of the day, I would sort of feel a little anxiety thinking that I might have to like, you know, supplement it with like a bag of dope to be able to sleep because at the end of the day, I feel like it was wearing off. And at that time, I guess I wasn't fully committed to like using methadone the way methadone is really prescribed. So wasn't a hundred percent serious about methadone. Was still using heroin on the side. Um, then that progressed to heroin and cocaine. So I was on methadone, heroin, cocaine. Uh, what really made the difference after that was an overdose. And it was funny at the time there was a dealer that I was that I was working with, and on the street everybody was letting it be known that be careful, this particular dealer had fentanyl and it just intrigued me even more because I know fentanyl is pretty much a lot stronger. And I don't know, maybe I was on, maybe, was on, maybe I was on a little bit of a suicide mission thinking that, you know, I can handle fentanyl. My first OD, my first experience with an OD, I believe, in, involved fentanyl mixed in with the heroin. Um, and as soon as I shot it, I knew something was different. And um, I pretty much crawled. You know, after, after the wave came on, it felt like I just lost my legs. And I practically, like, crawled to the bathroom, turned on the shower got under the cold water and sort of like willed myself out of like almost like losing consciousness. And that experience sort of wakened me up to sort of take methadone serious. Um, but still, I wasn't totally convinced at the time I truly wanted to live until my second overdose. Um, my second overdose involved cocaine, heroin, and I basically would do the coke, shoot the coke, and then chase it with heroin. And as soon as I shot the coke, I knew something was wrong. Like, I knew I wouldn't be able to handle the dose that I just administered to myself, and that it was a good possibility that was the defining moment, like, I pretty much felt like I was going to die. So, um, God willing, I didn't. And I pretty much went to the hospital the following day because, like, I must have suffered from the cocaine overdose. I must have suffered from, like, a slight stroke. Um, because after that, I've never felt the same. Um, went to the hospital, went to the ER, got checked out. And I remember the doctor in the ER saying that, you know, I, ex I probably experienced the, um, I probably experienced the slight seizure and, uh, and, and slight stroke. So, 
from that moment on, I pretty much went back to Mount Sinai, uh, started t- attending groups, CBT groups at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai uh, Methadone Clinic. Um, got put on a dose of methadone that was comfortable to me. I believe I went on a 90 milligram dose of methadone um, where I stabilized that. And God willing, that 90 milligram dose of methadone I was able to feel comfortable throughout the day. The groups and my individual counselors there, from the nurses down to the peer advocates there, just encouraged me, inspired me um, to keep on doing what I was doing. And I just went to groups every morning. I'd wake up, get dosed, go to my groups, and uh, take care of uh, appointments through HRA and um, uh, Department of Homeless Services because throughout the process, I lost my job. I got kicked out of my apartment. Uh, had the, and this was after the OD. Um, so from the OD, um, to support my heroin and cocaine habit, I'd boost uh, fish, lobster, and shrimp from supermarkets throughout the city, um, selling to dealers. And this was, this was, you know, basically funding my heroin habit. So, um, so to fast forward a little bit, went to Mount Sinai, started going to meetings. I was encouraged by everybody in the clinic from the peer advocates to the nurses, to the doctors, to other people in the groups that shared their stories. And I, w- I just basically made a connection that encouraged me to, I guess, put myself in a position where I can encourage others the same way I was encouraged. So one of my case managers at Mount Sinai passed me a pamphlet and this pamphlet was, um, peer recovery training as a certified recovery peer advocate. And this training was at Bronx Community College. So it was a 10 month, it was a 10 month program where we would take classes on comprehensive health, uh, community health worker uh, certifications, uh, also uh, uh, basic, basic life support, uh, trainings with CPR classes, um, uh, ethics training, classes on ethics. We had a certain amount of hours we had to uh, fulfill an ethics training. Then from there, we'd fill out an application. We'd send it to OASIS, which governs all treatment facilities in New York. The school program, the recovery peer program that that sourced the, the training, the training courses, basically uh, funded the whole thing. They sent the application fees, uh, the certification fees. So once the certifications came in, you know, we set up a resume with basically, um, you know, previous work history involving recovery and uh, sent my resume out to a couple of different treatment facilities. And lo and behold, I was called back for recovery peer advocate position 
and uh, I started working as a peer advocate. But it all basically started from my experience at uh, Mount Sinai Methadone thing. And I don't know, it was just a really, really inspiring experience. Um, you know, coming out of an OD and realizing that, uh, that I very much had a purpose to, uh, you know, pass on the message of uh, recovery. There was a moment where, there was a moment where I, I was totally convinced that, you know, I was totally convinced that that was it for me, you know. So, but that near-death experience definitely turned my life around. But uh, my pathway to recovery was was pretty lengthy. It, it involved several trips in and out of treatment. It involved five or six relapses. But uh, throughout the whole experience, man, I always had this, I always had this hunger to, uh, I always had this hunger to, to get clean and to live my life uh, to my, you know, to my fullest, you know, potential. So, um, now I work with a lot of guys that have lengthy uh, prison experiences, that have, uh, have a couple of guys in my caseload that, uh, that have done 20, 20, 24, 25, 26, 27 years in prison, like, They've done serious time in prison and uh, I'm able to, you know, show them that, you know, recovery is possible. Um, yeah, and, you know, I'm pretty new in the field. I only have like, uh, <clears throat> have like six, I have like six months working in the field of recovery. So, the experience is pretty new to me. So, but what, what what gets me what gets me going is you know seeing the the effect that I have on others. So, me telling my story is also a very new experience for me as well. You know, um, you know, and it's heartfelt and. I dedicate my life to it. You know, AA and NA is not only, uh, as far as statistics are concerned, uh, they do have a they do have a tremendous amount of uh, people that recover from NA and A. But from my experience, it wasn't necessarily my pathway. I've been to meetings. I've heard countless speakers speak. But um, it, it wasn't necessarily my pathway to recovery. My pathway to recovery was uh, pain was a major factor for me. So it motivated me to search out other uh, avenues of recovery, such as, uh, you know, CPT meetings worked for me. Um, uh, volunteer, volunteering, doing uh, outreach for outpatient facilities throughout New York worked for me. Um, 
you know, just my experiences with, uh, with connecting with old friends that I've met in an A, you know, worked for me. Facebook has worked for me. Instagram is, has been a tremendous, you know, support system, uh, support system with connecting with people that are, you know, encouraged by hearing other stories on however they recover through AA meetings, through treatment, you know, through methadone, through suboxone, through a whole bunch of different, you know, ways that people choose to, uh, you know, get clean. I've seen uh, people get clean, you know, doing 28 days in a rehab and then stay clean for a lengthy period of time without not one relapse. And then again, I, you know, I've seen people, you know, struggle with, uh, they go in and out of 28 day rehabs all over the city. I have clients that I placed them in long-term treatment that, they stay 20 days leave and I do follow up progress notes on them and they are genuinely staying clean. Like maybe five months later, which I find like awesome. Like, so uh, there's definitely so many different ways people get clean. Uh, my way might not necessarily be different from anybody else's way. I don't really think my story is unique, but uh, I think that uh, if you truly have the will and the want to get clean, explore options, find out, you know, find out what works for you. If AA works for you, that's awesome, man. The people there are awesome. They're dedicated to, uh, you know, passing the message on and making connections and sharing their story on how they recovered. You know, that's totally inspirational to, you know, to listen to, and just to pass along the message of recovery. But however, however someone finds to get clean, it really truly has to be a genuine want and not necessarily a want for somebody other than yourself. Because at the end of the day, if you don't really take if you don't really take a look inside and look in the mirror and actually do like a serious an internal inventory of 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 who you are, recovery is I'm not gonna say impossible, but recovery will be that much harder. Um that's what really did it for me. Me getting real with myself. Me taking a look at, you know, situations where I was traumatized with abandonment, with neglect, with indifference, um, you know, me being, me being able to come to grips with those issues is what really, really, really did it for me. And if, if somebody's getting clean because, you know, they want their girl take them back or their mom to let them back in the house or so they don't go back to jail because they're mandated. It, it's just not going to work unless you truly, truly want it for yourself. And you have to be the motivating factor. 
you can't let you know a parole officer or the fear of going back to jail or the fear of not having a place to live because your mom's kicking you out or your girl's kicking you out you truly have to want it yourself and you truly have to really want it yourself um I know we only have a couple of minutes left. I just want to say that uh, if anybody's interested in coming to my Instagram account, or you can reach me by email. My email is mikesnicenyc at gmail.com. Uh, you can throw me a message. I can give you a link to my Instagram account. I'm a peer advocate for a company called Center of Treatment Innovation out of Brooklyn. We're located 1665 Pinkett Avenue. Uh, we have tremendous amount of uh, motivated uh, recovery peer advocates that work there that place people into treatment, long-term, short-term, detox, micro programs. If mental health is an issue, we do telehealth services where we sort of encourage people to uh, get into treatment if they're resistant or if they're willing, we can place them into treatment within an hour or two. We have a mobile unit. We can pick people up. Uh, we can bring them to detox throughout, you know, any any detox in the city, in five boroughs. We can just drive them there quick, fast, in a hurry, um, as well as long-term and short-term treatment. And that's about it. Well, I super, super appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on and uh, share my story. Wow. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, that was great. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, you have to want it. Right. You have to. Exactly. Yeah. I like how genuine he was, and you could see the emotion coming through, mm-hmm. you know, when he's talking about, yeah. you know, what he's doing now and, like, recovery and helping other people. And it's, you can tell it, like, means a lot. It, it really cuts deep because, you know, recovery can't just be surface level, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and he talked about how, you know, you can't do it because your old lady's kicking you out of the house. Yeah. Or you can't do it because your parents are telling you to do it. Like, you have to want to do it for you. Right. And and it's just like you talked about in your story, you know, like you were finally to a point where, you know, when somebody asked you, are you ready to recover? And you're like, yes. Yeah. Yes, I'm ready. You know, mm-hmm. and I think we all get to that moment. At least I hope, you know, we all get to that moment. In fact, some of us don't, and it's unfortunate. But, um, you know, us on this side of the table all had that moment where we were willing enough. We had had our ass kicked enough that it was finally like, yes, yeah. let's let's do it. You know, And, and for him, you know, for Mike, it kind of like with your foot like like fuck i'm, I'm gonna die yeah you know he the overdose and the seizure and yeah 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 what's well, not pretty for him no and, and i like that and what, what i really identified with was he talked about how there was this one dealer who was known for having fentanyl and that didn't scare him in fact it enticed him even more he's yeah. like oh well i want the good stuff i was gonna say that because that's something i really relate to where you know, obviously when I was using in, in the midst of my heroin addiction, you know, it wasn't necessarily taboo anymore. And it's like on the news, everyone's talking about overdoses and fentanyl and you got to stay away from it. But I remember when I was on the streets, like if I heard someone had fentanyl, I was like, yes, mm, like that yeah. means that this is good. Like, I don't care yeah. if it's like pure heroin. I just care about getting as high as possible right. <laughs> and like not being as sick for as long as possible. So it's right. like if someone has something laced with fentanyl, great. Like I'd prefer that. <laughs> oh man. Like the danger or like the risk in my mind isn't, doesn't play a part of that. Yeah. It's almost makes it more appealing, which is exactly. what he said. Like, yeah. There, there was some more appeal to it because of that, which is, it's hard to say because he said, you know, like, I don't think I was on a suicide mission, but there was something about that that made it a little bit more appealing. The yeah. self-destructive behavior is, and yep. I think, pretty universal in a lot of 
addict stories, you know, whatever it looks like, like whether or not they actually had a suicide attempt or something, like there's clearly self-destructive behavior that's, you know, tearing apart at you and your relationships and your life where it's like the consequences have far outweighed the benefits, but you're still doing it anyways, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That's like what defines addiction for a large part. And, and I can only imagine, you know, some of the shit that he saw in New York City, you know, right. LA is pretty big. I yeah. think New York's bigger. Yeah. You know, just that city going grimy to life. That, that prison that he was in. Uh, is, Rikers is, Island. is world famous, yeah. Yeah. right? Everybody knows about Rikers Island. Um, That's intense. The, the like, amount of time that he was in there, yeah, you know, and then being twenty one, like lengthy. like fuck, man, just the amount of of shit that he went through, and then being able to come through and do like what we we're talking about, you know, becoming a, a advocate and a and a support person, and and doing that as a career and, and moving towards that as a career and, and making a lifestyle out of using his story to help other people get clean. Yeah. You know, fucking noble, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Dude. Like, yeah. I think it, it's cool. Cause I, I think for me, the way I look at my past and my addiction now, it's like not a negative thing that I hide from or I'm ashamed of. I think it's one of my greatest strengths today mm -hmm. because it was this adversity that I faced that I overcame and it gave me a reason and a need to focus on personal development and really grow because if I wasn't faced with those dire consequences like there wouldn't be a reason for me to like every day be like how am I going to act how am I going to treat other people like what am I going to do today to like be better it's like that need isn't there you know mm -hmm. I might have read a self-help book once a year or something but it's not like every day putting pressure on it and it's that experience I went through is what allows me to help other people today so it's right. like an asset so I think it's cool that he's using that and you know really rolling with it to, to help other people now it's that's awesome yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, a cornerstone of his recovery, as you can see, just, just with the way that he got emotional when he talked about it. Mm -hmm. And it's cornerstone of, you know, any recovery. Like, any good recovery is going to be, you know, giving back. And, again, it's one of those things that seems to be, you know, sort of universal as far as, you know, the pathways to recovery. And, and I know in my story, you know, that any opportunity I have to give back or any opportunity that I feel like somebody has benefited from my message means that all that shit I went through wasn't in vain. Yeah. Like hey, there was a purpose for it, you know? I want to share a quick like story real quick that just made me think of that. Um, when I was like on the streets of LA, I, I met this dude, Jerome. I mean, he's like this old black dude that, that lives in South Central that he used to be a crack addict. He has 20 years sober today. He never went to a treatment center, never stepped foot inside an AA meeting, an NA meeting. But what he's done is he helps give back to the church. And then he created an after-school basketball program for inner city kids in South Central. Huh. And that's his passion now. And so he helps like kids escape you know, that lifestyle through this outlet of basketball and teaching them that. And I think just that's so cool. And it's just that same idea of you know giving back in some way. It doesn't have to look like any particular thing, whatever it looks like for you. But it, it is super important. Yeah, so big, you know. Yeah. So, Mike, thank you so much for sharing your story yeah, with us thanks, and, Mike. and being vulnerable and, and sharing what's working and what you went through. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it, and so uh, we appreciate that. Um, yeah, yeah, great, great show. So, so Frank, if if people are interested in in Soar and they want to get a hold of you, how do they how do they connect with Soar? Um, a great way is just like our website. It's schoolofaddiction.org. Um, you know, our phone numbers are there. You can call, you can send in an email, um, or you can call the line. It's 801-943-2655. 
Okay. And yeah. Instagram handle is the same? Yeah, at School of Addiction. Or you can find us on Facebook, um, SOAR, School of Addiction Recovery. Um, yeah, that's what we're yeah. about is in, in the business of helping people. So if you need help or you have family or loved ones or whatever that live, you know, lives in the Ogden or, you know, Davis County area, you know, definitely hit us up. And if we can't help you, we have plenty of resources that we work with plenty of other centers and, you know, programs that can hopefully help you find something that's lasting. Hell yeah. yeah. That's what's up. Hell yeah. Good thanks, shit. Man. Thanks. I I thanks for think, having me on. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for coming out and sharing your story. And, and it's always great to, to meet another brother in recovery and, and uh, hope you come back. I appreciate it. It's awesome what you guys go, have going on here. and Definitely appreciate it. So Thanks. thank you. Thanks, man. Yeah, you're welcome. So with that, should we wrap it out? Yeah, let's wrap it out, man. I can't ever remember how we do it. Frank, you want to say goodbye? Uh, goodbye. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <Not> sure. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. Remember, you are worth the work. And with that, we'll see you on the other